2: Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.
3: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause.
0: In a Moscow TV studio, a 30-something guy with thick, wavy hair leans forward in his chair. His name is Artemy Troitsky, the barricade-building journalist from the last episode. He's about to invite you to something revolutionary.
4: From my TV offices, I've made the last announcement live, saying the Gagarin party is starting very soon. You are welcome to the first ever rave in Moscow. The
0: first ever rave in Moscow. A rager to end all ragers, and named after Yuri Gagarin, the first human to journey into space.
4: And it will be techno music, played all night, Russian, Latvian, and German, and French DJs.
0: And the location? Also cosmonaut-themed. The Space Pavilion a museum dedicated to the glories of the space program.
4: It was like a Soviet communist Disneyland.
0: You walk in, there's a curved ceiling made of glass. It's dark. The music's so loud, you feel it in your chest. All around you are models and relics from the Soviet's glorious space program. Satellites, the capsule that sent Gagarin into space, Garn's spacesuit from his flight and the place is packed bodies sweating bodies dancing throwing their heads up to the sky young people free at last to party.
4: I think that the whole of cool Moscow was there artists actors, models.
0: The new generation, creating something beautiful from the ashes of the old
4: world. We felt like a brand new country, which is aiming at a bright future, which will be totally different from what we've had before.
0: But what would that mean for the cosmonaut? The Soviet citizens who once represented the future. What would happen to them in the new Russia? Good, good. I'm Lance Bass and from Kaleidoscope Exile and iHeart Podcast. This is the last Soviet
3: Mingling with the rush hour traffic, Red Army armored personnel carriers on the streets of Moscow. The
0: August 1991. A faction of hardline communists just tried to take control of the Soviet government.
3: With tanks in Red Square. The official tanks
0: rattled Indian through the streets of Moscow. And hundreds of thousands of people stood up to them.
5: Three civilians had died last
6: night when light tanks tried to slam through a barricade.
0: In just three days, the coup failed. The hardliners were pushed out and the people won.
6: Tonight, Mikhail Gorbachev is again president of the Soviet Union. The men who tried to bring him down are either under arrest or being hunted.
0: But as the dust settled and all of the old values and structures of the Soviet world fell away, a brand new system was beginning to take shape. As if to herald this new dawn, something very unusual was about to happen on the Soviet space station, where our man Sergei is still hard at work. The cosmonauts on Mir were about to become the face of one of the most famous brands in the world, Coca-Cola.
7: If you taste it, there's the burn and bite at the back of your throat for a moment. That then gives you the ah.
0: In the summer of 1990, Craig Kohan was 27 years old, newly single and ready to take Moscow by storm, one can of Coca-Cola at a time.
7: I was sent to figure out how to build the Coca-Cola system in the Soviet Union. That was the brief.
0: Craig was the new face of capitalism, the alternative to the old Soviet way of doing things. Remember, in the USSR, private enterprise had been banned completely for decades. So Craig was a representative of a totally new mindset, a totally new way of life. And you could say Craig was born to do this job. He grew up in Toronto in what he called a McDonald's family.
3: McDonald's Big Mac. When he was a kid,
0: Let's his, his a dad, George Cohan, brought the first ever McDonald's to Canada. Canadians went crazy for it. You
5: deserve a break today at McDonald's. Where your dollar gets a break every day.
0: George Cohan even had a bus called the Big Mac bus, used to raise money for charity. And then in 1976, during the Montreal Olympics, the Canadian government came to Craig's dad with a strange favor. Would he please let the Soviet delegation use his bus to get around the city? And so we met all the Soviets in 1976. They rode the Big Mac bus, and in the evening, they went out to dinner. And what did they eat? Yeah, you guessed it. Big Macs, and that's when Craig's dad had an idea. Watching these big Russian guys tucking into burgers and fries, he thought, I know what I'm gonna make my life's mission, to bring McDonald's to the Soviet Union.
7: It became, for my father, a 14-year, amazing, epic odyssey to get the first McDonald's built in Pushkin Square.
0: Pushkin Square is a square in central Moscow, a stone's throw from the Kremlin.
7: And so that was 14 years of conversations at home, conversations in the car, conversations at dinner about the Soviets. Year in and year out, they
0: would host a rotating cast of Soviets at the Kohan residence. Anyone and everyone who could get a word back to the Kremlin about the wonders of McDonald's.
7: Whether they're ambassadors or ballet dancers or artists or politicians. And then in January 1990.
6: Well, it's been 14 years in the making and today, finally, McDonald's threw open the doors to its first restaurant in Moscow.
0: 30,000 people stood in line that day.
1: They started lining up this morning at four o'clock. This woman doesn't know what she just ate, but she says it was unusual and delicious. Clearly,
0: George Kohan had been on to something.
1: head of McDonald's Canada waxed lyrical.
6: In this day and age, it's nice when the people can come out and get meat, bread, potatoes, and milk of the
1: highest quality.
0: Craig watched in amazement at what his dad had just done.
1: Happiness today in Moscow lay in the communal pursuit of a Big Mac.
0: But he wanted to do something even bigger. For Craig, it was about more than just business. He was an idealist, and he had this vision that capitalism could actually bring Russians together with the rest of the world, that East and West could unite under the banner of a big brand. In December 1990, he flew to Moscow to attend the opening of his dad's McDonald's. And while he was there, he bumped into the CEO of Coca-Cola.
7: He was drunk one night at the Kremlin after the opening of McDonald's.
0: The CEO of Coca-Cola looked at Craig and had an idea.
7: And he said, Craig, I'm thinking of three things, you, the Soviet Union, and you in the Soviet Union.
0: <laughs> Big companies like Coca-Cola saw an incredible opportunity in the Soviet Union. It was an open market. Western products basically didn't exist. So the potential for profit was mouthwatering. And now the CEO has the perfect man for the job, Craig Kohan the son of the guy who got McDonald's into Moscow. But this was a very different challenge. Craig's dad had opened a single McDonald's. The CEO of Coke wanted cans in every corner shop in Russia. Total domination. Craig accepted the challenge. Stage one, reconnaissance.
7: For the first six months, June of 1990 to December of 1990, I spent every day Going to every single metro stop in the city, understanding how people drink beverages. You know, they used to have these amazing vending machines where there was a single glass.
3: Incidentally, just when you expect hard frost, Moscow has a thirsty heat wave. So buy yourself a curbside drink when you wash the glass.
7: And you would get a cool beverage, a kvass, out of that. Kvass. Not my favorite
0: drink. But if sour bread and liquid form floats your boat, you might like it. And it's probably the second most popular drink in Russia after vodka, which was definitely more my thing, especially the infused ones. The pineapple,
7: very good. You would wash the glass and put it back, and the next person would use the same glass, wash it, and put it back and put five kopecks in. So that's how people were experiencing beverages. Very
0: different to American vending machines. And so Craig had a ton of questions he needed to ask people lining up for their glass of kvass. Although he was careful not to tell
7: them he worked for Coca-Cola. No one really knew that I was working there. I was this interested guy doing a study on beverages in the Soviet Union. It was like he was an undercover agent. People just opened their arms to me for all the information. And that's how I got data. And then I worked at a Chakovsky Zavot for two and a half weeks. It was a champagne factory. And so I saw exactly how they mixed the product. I saw how they mixed the concentrate. I saw the rats in the sugar. I saw the whole system, the whole Soviet system.
0: After a few months, Craig felt like the reconnaissance stage of his mission was complete. But for Craig and Coca-Cola to actually launch themselves in the Soviet Union, they needed a way to get into the hearts, minds, and eventually the mouths of Soviets. So they were going to have to get creative.
7: Coca-Cola had never been on the North Pole, and so we got Coca-Cola to the North Pole. The company sponsored a famous Russian Arctic explorer. He put a Coca-Cola in his bag, and he took his Huskies, Siberian Huskies, and he went up to the North Pole and took a picture. Coca-Cola in the North Pole, great.
0: And then it was time to head to the Kremlin.
7: I made sure that when Bush met Gorbachev, there was a Coca-Cola on that table. So Craig starts thinking, what's the next frontier? If you could go to the North Pole and you could get it on the table at the Kremlin, you could certainly get it in space.
0: Infiltrating the Soviet space station, this was going to be the most spectacular triumph for Coca-Cola and good old fashioned American capitalism. And so Coca-Cola's engineers started working away in a lab in Atlanta, trying to create a Coke can that could survive on mirror. And after months of work, it was ready a little red can that looks a lot like the ones we have here on Earth, except it was fitted with a strange white nozzle and a metal button on top. This was meant to stop it from exploding in zero gravity. On August 20th, 1991, the Soviet space agency launched their M9 cargo spacecraft from Baikonur in Kazakhstan. On board is a crate of space-proof Coca-Cola cans making their groundbreaking journey to the space station. The next day, Sergei presses a button on top of the can, and it squirts the Coke into his mouth. Mmm, the burn and bite at the back of your throat, even in space. It's a huge moment. Although Sergei wasn't really sure about the taste.
3: His ham radio friend Maggie asked him, Do you like Coca-Cola? What's it taste like in space? And Sergei said, it's all right in space. He said, but orange juice is better. No matter, Coca-Cola and capitalism
7: had won the day. It was like integration, finally, of these two opposing Cold War cultures that have come together, and Coca-Cola being a little moment that brought people together.
0: For idealists like Craig, it seemed like the beginning of a new future for Russia, Sergei, and the space program. But there was a problem lurking just around the corner. Not everyone in the new Russia had such noble intentions as Craig.
7: I think there's two ways to approach this country.
0: That's Craig in an NBC interview from the time.
7: One is to be a pioneer, and the other is to be a pirate, and come in here and try to pillage the land.
0: And it turns out, in the new Russia, the line between pioneer and pirate was extremely thin
7: why did you put a rocket propelled hand grenade through my office this morning? And he said, I've been wanting to meet you and I really didn't know how else to get your attention.
0: That's after the break.
2: Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.
6: If you're 21 years old and use nicotine or tobacco, I'm here to tell you about Black Buffalo and how it's redefining tradition for millions of adult consumers. So if you're over 21, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. Warning. This product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black buffalo products are intended for adults aged 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Just
0: a few months after Sergei drank the can of Coke on the space station, the Soviet flag came down for the very last time over the Kremlin. In Moscow,
3: the
5: hammer and sickle is lowered for the last time
0: the Soviet Union was over.
5: The tricolor banner of the Russian Republic now flies over the Kremlin.
0: Communism was dead. And while men like Craig Kohan saw this as a moment of hope for the future, the lives of ordinary Russians were plunged into uncertainty. I mean, when you lose a system that you've grown up in and you
5: have no idea where else to go, a lot of people went out and started planting potatoes
0: at their dachas. That's Serge Schmemann, the former New York Times correspondent in Moscow we've been hearing from throughout this series. Our office car was a Volvo
5: station wagon, so some of these people would ask us to go with them to their dacha and
0: bring back their potatoes, because, you know, big bags to bring them back to Moscow. They were planting potatoes because, at that point in time, potatoes were the safest way to make sure you had food. The ruble was collapsing. The shops filled up, but the number of
5: people who could afford anything plummeted. People's life savings were suddenly worthless. you we went into a period of kind of an elemental primitive economy where factories traded with each other, you know, I'll give you a window if you give me a banana.
1: Remember hearing about the Russian black market? It always sounded so spy-like, so covert, so underground. Well, here it is at its lowest level.
5: And. Strange things gained value.
1: This man stripped down a TV set hoping to make enough money just to buy milk or bread.
5: A pack of Marlboro's, Marlboro cigarettes, was roughly the equivalent of a dollar. You bartered. It was a barter economy. I never went anywhere without four or five
0: cartons of Marlboro's. A cigarette was better value than cash. Because when communism collapsed the new government made a drastic decision. With the help of economic advisors from America, they decided the best way to transition the economy from a communist to a capitalist system was to do it all at once. In the old Soviet Union, the government controlled prices. Overnight, those price controls were removed, which meant that the candy that used to cost one ruble now cost 2,000.
1: Shoppers stared in disbelief at what they now have to pay for the most basic goods. Ham, for example, at more than a thousand rubles a kilo. That's two months' worth of wages for most people.
0: The economist
5: called it shock therapy. You had to let the system go. and, And it had to find its own bottom and it had to start rebuilding.
0: Overnight, the cash economy collapsed.
1: The problem for shoppers here these days isn't the long lines. Russians are used to waiting in line. Their concern is what happens when they reach the end of that line. There, they'll find either bread or milk three or four times higher than they were just weeks ago. Or worse, no food at all.
0: This also led to a wave of crime sweeping through Moscow. You had a lot of theft. The streets became dangerous.
7: They say that some people belong to the mafia here. Do you know anything about that?
3: No, no. No mafia.
5: For us, you know, I mean, we were dressed in Western clothes and had Western cars. Our car was stolen twice.
3: This man's parting shot. Mafia is The mafia is forever.
0: Organized crime was emerging from the ruins of the Soviet empire a period of straight-up banatry set in. In order to get by in the new Russia, you had to do things that you would never have dreamt of just a few months earlier. By early 1992, Craig Kohan is setting up his Coca-Cola factory in Moscow. But he's beginning to realize this is not the friendly, hopeful Russia he arrived in back in 1990. Things have changed so quickly. And if he's going to succeed, it's becoming clear he's going to have to change too.
7: I'm on the way to the office at like 5.30 in the morning to try to start up all the equipment, et cetera, et cetera. And I get a note from our security that a rocker-propelled hand grenade just went through my office.
0: No one's hurt, but Craig is shaken. This is a far cry from the quiet streets of Toronto.
7: And I said, oh, that's good. I'm glad I wasn't there. So. I asked the security, where was it shot from? It was shot from the big apartment block across the street. I have this very clearly in my head. So I said, okay, let's go find out who it is.
0: So, heart thumping, Craig climbs into one of those old Soviet elevators, about the size of a porta potty and smelling like one too. He's got no clue what he'll find at the top.
7: I go to the 12th floor and I meet with the head of the Sanssoukri Semya the Sanseskri family. It's like a local racketeering group that started roughing enough. people. And I sat down with him, just one-on-one, and I said, why did you put a rocker propelled hand grenade through my office this morning? And he said, I've been wanting to meet you, and I really didn't know how else to get your attention because I'd like my guys to be your drivers. And I said, perfect. You didn't have to do that. And so I hired a bunch of the guys.
0: So now these grenade-throwing mobsters are working for Craig. And Coca-Cola, the man who'd come to the Soviet Union as a pioneer, started looking more and more like a pirate. A new breed of person began to take control in Russia. While most people lost their life savings after the Soviet Union collapsed, a handful saw an opportunity, an opportunity to buy entire industries, oil, gas, raw materials for peanuts. These people, you might know them as oligarchs, became the rulers of the new capitalist Russia. And that meant that people who used to be valued in Soviet society, teachers, doctors, cosmonauts, no longer were. That's when I remember long lines of
5: really well-dressed people selling, you know, sweaters and and whatever they could, shoes. It it was terribly sad.
0: Everything had turned topsy-turvy. Those who had been up were now down. University professors selling socks in the subway, criminals working for Coca-Cola, and cosmonauts now making less money than taxi drivers. In early 1992, Sergei was making 500 rubles a month, just $2.50 at the new exchange rate. He was a highly trained engineer, a national hero, still up in space risking his life for his country, and now struggling to support his wife and baby daughter. And that's when rumors started going around that things had gotten so bad the cosmonauts were actually going on strike.
3: There was a silence from Sergei at that point. Um, he's He's quite a voluble, uh, garrulous type of man. he He always has something interesting to say, but there was silence at that point
0: That's after the break.
6: If you're 21 years old and use nicotine or tobacco, I'm here to tell you about Black Buffalo and how it's redefining tradition for millions of adult consumers. So if you're over 21, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. Warning. This product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults aged 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco.
0: It's a sunny morning on the other side of the world from Moscow. Ham radio operator Maggie Quinto is out running errands in Kolak, her little town in Western Australia. She parks her car on the wide, flat highway that cuts through the middle of the town and gets her shopping bags out of the trunk. She's heading towards the bakery when a battered farm truck pulls up next to her.
3: I would be stopped in the street, and uh, people whom I hardly knew would say, how are our cosmonauts?
0: Our cosmonauts. It turns out, in the months that Maggie had been talking to Mir, the whole town of Kolak had fallen in love with these Soviet spacemen, too.
3: These guys would pass me, I've never seen these farmers before, and they'd look at me and point to the sky and go, are they okay?
0: But today, the farmer driving the truck looks worried. He's heard things about the cosmonauts. The cosmonauts' salaries are worthless. Their families can barely afford groceries. So they're going to stop working. They're going on strike. Maggie tries to dismiss the stories as rumors, but soon newspapers are publishing stuff that's even more wild. Not only are the cosmonauts on strike, they're actually stuck in space. These newspaper stories have terrifying headlines like, Junked in Space and Stuck in Endless Orbit.
3: They're being stranded there, they're being punished. That's what the rumors said, that they were left there deliberately. Uh, no one was going to bring them down. They even say Sergei is ill. The journalists rang up Sergei's wife and asked her about his illness, which is must have been rather devastating for her to listen to.
0: All this time, Maggie's thinking, what's going on here? She's been talking to Sergei nearly every day, and he seems fine chatting to her about their kids, his spacewalks, Newham radio technology. But she can't shake this doubt. Are they okay? Is there something they aren't telling me? And then one day, Maggie gets a call.
3: A radio station in Melbourne rang me and said, Please, can you find out, is it true about all of these things?
0: Now, in the past, Maggie has stayed clear of asking Sergei about politics, not wanting to put him on edge. But today, with the world's press writing these strange stories and people stopping her in the street, Maggie decides she's going to be direct with Sergey. She's going to ask for the truth. What is really happening to her friends, her cosmonauts?
3: So I said, okay, I'll send them a message, again, electronically, and I'll ask them these questions, but there's no guarantee. They're very, very busy out there. They have much work to do, and I don't know if they'll answer.
0: Her fingers shaking a little, Maggie started typing.
3: So the questions I asked them were, are you hungry? Uh, Is it true that you're on strike? Has your supply ship docked? Do you like being on strike? Um, And they say, Sergey, that you have fallen ill. Is that true? And those were the questions.
0: Maggie hits send, and she waits. On Mir, Sergei sees the question flood in. He's taken aback. For months, speaking to Maggie had just been a bit of light relief, a bit of fun. But between the lines of her anxious questions, he can see her concern for him. He knows he has to respond straight away. Within minutes... Maggie's old Toshiba is flashing with a new message.
3: Uh, greetings, Rita, which is my name. He said, Australia is located at the other side of the earth from Moscow. It's very far, so news is greatly changed when it reaches you. People in Australia and Moscow walk upside down from each other. Maybe this is the reason your news arrives
0: reversed. But what about the strike everyone's talking about? Were Sergei and his colleagues refusing to work?
3: He said um, that there was a threatened strike at flight control. Uh, But it's impossible, he said, for him to go on strike. And as as you can imagine, they have to keep things running on the space station. And if they were to go on strike, they would die.
0: Maggie is relieved. But then she gets another call from a journalist. Listen, I've got this tip off. You're not going to believe this, but apparently the Russians are thinking of selling the space station. Maggie thinks, fake news. She knows things are changing over there, but the Russians would never put their space station up for sale. This is the crowning glory of Soviet space technology. But the journalist says to her.
3: Look, the next time you're talking to these fellows, ask them about the selling of Mir, the space station. And so I did. There was a silence from Sergei at that point. He's quite a voluble, uh, garrulous type of man. He he always has something interesting to say, but there was silence at that point. And he said, look, I'll talk with mission control. And at that point, I'm going to guess, and I don't really know, but I'm going to guess that that news had not reached them.
0: After everything Sergei has been through.
3: Psychologically, it must have been devastating. Yeah, look, I reckon it would have been
0: to hear from someone in Australia that the country he'd sacrificed everything for might sell his home from under his feet. That's next time on The Last Soviet. The Last Soviet is a Kaleidoscope production in partnership with iHeart Podcast and Exile Media. Produced by Samizdat Audio and hosted by me, Lance Bass. Executive produced by Kate Osborne and Mangesh Hadakador with Oz Woloshin and Kostas Linos. From iHeart, executive produced by Katrina Norvel and Nikki Ettore. From Samizdat Audio, our executive producers are Joe Sykes and Dasha Lisitsina. Produced by Asia Fuchs, Dasha Litsitsinia, and Joe Sykes. Writing by Lydia Marchant. Research by Mika Golubowski and Molly Schwartz. Music by Will Epstein. Theme by Martin Orstrich. Mixing and sound design by Richard Ward. And special thanks to Nando Villa, Melissa Pollock, Will Pearson, Connell Byrne, Bob Pittman, and Isaac Lee. If you want to hear more shows like this, Nothing is more important to the creators here at Kaleidoscope than subscribers, ratings, and reviews. So please spread the love wherever you listen.
1: You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately.